2: and enjoy the show it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark (laughs)
3: Ha <laughs> ha Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about nightmarish naps and sinister swamps. I'm Otis Jiry, host of the Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast, now in its eighth season. My show is available on iTunes and wherever podcasts can be found, so if you enjoy all things spooky, come on over to my neck of the woods and check us out too. You won't be sorry you did. Tonight I'll be filling in as host on behalf of my very good friend, Steve Taylor. In the meantime, I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly-lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of John Macklin and Jason Norton to life are voice talents Heather Ordover and Jeff Clement. Both of tonight's stories are buried treasure from Chilling Tales' incredible archive of tales dating back to 2012 And for newer listeners, it's likely the first time they've ever been heard. We've been fortunate over the years to work with many talented men and women, and these tales are evidence of that, and of our humble beginnings, and I hope you enjoy them as much as we do. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale tonight comes to us from author John Macklin, and is performed by Heather Ordover. In it, a gentleman chooses the wrong bed to sleep in during his travels in Europe. Unfortunately for him, insomnia is about to be the least of his concerns. Without further ado, I present to you Death in a Dark Mirror. Max
1: Hellier was never able to explain exactly what it was that woke him from his normally deep sleep. He could usually sleep through any disturbance. The room was pitch black, and although there was no light of any sort from the window, a faint bluish glimmer permeated the gloom. It was a weird, pulsating reflection of light, unlike any Hellier had ever seen. Then he noticed that the light was surrounding the reflection of the bedroom door in the mirror on the opposite wall, but it was something else that almost made his heart stop beating. For although he could see nobody beside him in the bed, a quick glance to the side showed a definite indentation of the pillow and the outline of a body beneath the blankets. even worse there was a sudden intense coldness beside him almost as if he were lying beside a corpse he glanced in the mirror again and stifled a scream of horror hellier couldn't see himself reflected in the dark mirror but there was another man lying there a burly bearded, handsome man with a swarthy complexion. And at that instant, Hellier could hear the man's heavy breathing. Then, still in the mirror, he saw the bedroom door open slowly and a woman peer in. Her eyes were fixed on the figure of the bearded man on the bed. Hellier watched as she crept up to the man with a horrible feline stealth and gripped the sleeper's throat with her long bony fingers. He stared silently at the mirror as she squeezed the last breath of life from the hefty man. Then suddenly, the hideous drama ended, the picture faded and Hellyer was once more alone in the room. Badly shaken by this experience, Hellier wished he had stayed somewhere else. He had disliked the room in the inn in Munich as soon as he saw it, especially the tall mirror that overshadowed the room, reflecting every movement, every tiny disturbance. Hellier, like many people, never slept on the left side of his bed, and now... As he sat shivering in the huge bed, staring at the empty mirror, he was grateful for his habit of sleeping on the right. He sank, thankfully, back into the pillows and tried to blot the dreadful vision of murder from his mind. In the morning, he was not sure that he had either dreamed the incident or else that his tired brain had run riot. He would have left the inn that very day, except that he met an old army buddy walking through Munich. Franz Braun was down on his luck. His heart had always been in painting, but Hillier knew that he had little talent. Braun had no job, no money, and that very morning had been evicted from his lodgings. Hellier offered Braun a meal at the inn and a night's lodging, not only out of friendship, Hellier wanted to see if Brown, too, would see the strange scene in the mirror. It turned out that now, in 1952, Brown had changed little from his war days. He wined and dined lavishly on Hellier's money and spent the whole evening flirting with the barmaid. Hellier had already gone up to the room when Brown came bustling in. She had to get back to work, he told Hellier, so we may as well turn in for the night. Hellier nodded. Brown said, the girl warned me not to sleep on the left side of the bed. I wonder why. Hellier had not told Brown about the apparitions in the mirror, but Brown was skeptical anyway about supernatural experiences. They settled down to sleep, Brown on the left side of the bed. It was hours later when Hellier woke to find that the room was deadly cold, and in the mirror at the foot of the bed, the bedroom glowed again with that ghostly light. He stared at the reflection. There was no sign of himself or Brown in the mirror, but the form of the heavy, dark-skinned man was once more lying on the left-hand side. Hellier turned to look at the form beside him, but the face on the pillow was that of Franz Brown. Hellier looked back to the mirror, and just as it had on the previous night, the door in the mirror opened slowly. The same gaunt, marble-like face peered in, and with brutish determination, the figure crept towards the bed, its face contorted with malice. The cruel white fingers settled once more on the throat beneath the man's bushy beard. Hellier watched fascinated as the woman's hands clasped tighter and tighter. Then, as the shuddering form in the mirror grew still, both figures vanished. Braun had not stirred at all during the drama, but now Hellier turned to his friend and shook him. Brown could not be roused. Alarmed, Hellier snapped on the light, and then he let out a cry of sheer terror. Brown was dead. On his throat were two red marks slowly fading from sight. Hellier's scream roused everybody. The doctor who was called attributed Brown's death to heart failure, but Hellier knew that Brown had been as healthy as a young horse. The next day, he questioned the barmaid, who had warned Brown about sleeping on the left-hand side of the bed. The girl looked at him uncertainly before saying, I was right to warn him, Herr Hellier. The last few people who slept on the left side of that bed died in exactly the same way.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
3: I hope you enjoyed Death in a Dark Mirror, as written by John Macklin and performed by Heather Ordover. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by author Jason Norton and performed by Jeff Clement. In it, we travel away from the busy streets of Munich to the dismal swamps of Florida, where one man is about to get a taste of the local legends up close and personally. Now, without further ado, I present to you, Bogged Down. What
4: began as a wretched weekend for Preston Allstott was turning out most glorious. His elation would have invariably been lost on the casual observer who did not share his passion for botany. But knee-deep in the brackish muck of the Everglades, leeches, gators, and fist-sized mosquitoes aside, he was reborn. Preston had woke on the last day of class, planning to work through spring break. His Friday morning, took a turn for the worse when he discovered a pipe in his kitchen had burst. His car would not start, and then he learned Harvard no longer required the talents of two fellow biologists in the upcoming year. With untold semesters to go before he could even hope for the security of tenure, Preston thought his position was threatened. He needed to publish, or at least contribute, to some credible research to bolster his resume if he he were to have any chance of staying with the university. But he had no idea where to begin. It was all too much. Preston had to get away. He called his contractor, worked out where to leave the key, and taxied to the airport. Five hours later, he was on a red eye to Florida. Preston considered calling his research team but the trip was supposed to be a casual getaway, not an expedition. Janie, he thought. She should have been part of his team, but she'd refused to accompany him on the last leg of his doctoral pursuit, choosing to stay in Ithaca. By sophomore year, Janie told him that she would always be his second most loved carbon-based life form. They still talk once per month by phone, but hadn't been face to face or body to body in over six years. Ever since, Preston was married to his work and he made no apologies. Human relationships had always been too difficult. Plants were easy. They lived and died. In the interim, they waged a silent war for survival, doing their damnedest to choke out competitive species for territorial dominance. Emotions were never involved There was no need for conversation or compromise. Plants were content to be alone. Six years hadn't helped him forget. Preston was still thinking of Janie as his plane taxied the tarmac. Preston took full advantage of the hotel's continental breakfast, then showered and slathered on sunscreen. After grabbing a folder full of ungraded midterms and the complimentary Miami Herald, he headed to the beach. It was spring break, and the college tourists that had bombarded the city still had a few more hours before they would depart, zombie-like, for their hotels, leaving the oceanfront suspiciously devoid of sunbathers. An hour later, Preston had only trudged through three midterms. It was difficult to focus. Peeling himself from his chair, he waded into the blue-green Atlantic. Diving under the waves, Preston made his way past the breakers. He followed the tide to buoy him as he lay backward. Eyes closed, he floated, mentally riffling through rare orchid species. It was a form of yoga he'd first utilized years ago. Symbidium sinense. Indigenous to India, Taiwan, and Thailand. Found in cool climates and requires ample light with lower temperatures. Thrives in an ideal humidity between 40 and 60%. Catlia chillerania, Brazil, grows in cool to hot temperatures on cliff faces and in rivers anywhere from sea level to 800 meters above, often used to create hybrids in attempts to breed super orchids. Dendrophylax lindeni, first found in Cuba in 1844, discovered in South Florida 50 years later, commonly known as the ghost orchid due to its billowy white appearance. 2,000 known to exist in the state. Their location mostly kept secret by researchers and horticulturalists. Considered the most sought-after orchid in the world. Preston opened his eyes at the realization, losing the poise of his float posture. South Florida? He was in South Florida. Within 40 minutes, he could be in the heart of Big Cypress Swamp. He couldn't believe he hadn't thought of it sooner he could find a ghost orchid. Bringing one back would be tantamount to sacrilege, but if he got the chance to study one in the wild, to even see one, it would spark inspiration for his next project and save his position at Harvard. Preston dug his cell phone from his bag. Dialing information, he asked for airboat companies. He stopped the operator at the third listing. The operator connected him directly.
5: go Airboat Tours. Best gator-gazing gateway in the glades.
4: The grapply voice on the other end extolled.
5: Mo speaking. May I help you?
4: Do you have tours going out today? Sure do, Mo replied. Preston waited expectantly. What time? he asked, realizing Mo wasn't volunteering additional information.
5: Time you want to leave?
4: Mo asked after an audible sip and swallow. Uh, how about around noon? Preston suggested, caught it off guard at the man's nonchalance. He wondered if all the natives were as casual.
5: Nah, noon's no good. Too damn hot. How about, let's say, four? Sun'll be lower,
4: Mo countered. Four it is. Preston agreed. Listen, is there any chance this could be a private tour?
5: Hell, they'll all be private today. Spring breakers don't care about air Ain't no sex or booze in it. He paused. Well, no sex anyway. Unless a couple of them co-eds show up and play their cards right.
4: Preston arrived at Fandango 15 minutes early. There wasn't much to the place. The tiny shack had an attached pavilion that barely covered two picnic tables. An old cash register sat atop a weathered bar. Two t-shirts, one red, one black, hung on coat hangers dangling from the rafters. The sun bleached shirts proudly displayed the white Fandango logo. An airboat driven by an oversized bespeckled alligator. Sunglasses resting on his snout. A graying, rotund man, wearing a trucker's cap with the same logo, emerged from the shack. His name was embroidered on his black polo
5: Mo. Howdy, friend. You must be my four o'clock. Mr. Uh, uh, doctor,
4: actually, Preston corrected. Dr. Preston Alstod. My apologies, Mo said, extending his hand. M.D.? Professor of Botanical Sciences at Harvard, Preston said, shaking the large man's hand.
5: An Ivy League plant
4: man? Hmm. Funny. I, I suppose so, Preston agreed, surprised he'd never made the same connection.
5: You must be here on business, considering your request for a private ride. Mo surmised. Uh, correct. I'm. Uh, I'm hoping to find
4: a ghost orchid. Mo finished for him. It was quickly becoming apparent that despite the man's yokel appearance, he was no dummy.
5: I can probably help you with that, but it'll cost a little more. How uh, about we say a hundred? That won't be a problem.
4: Preston assured him, pulling his wallet from his back pocket. Card readers on the Fritz, Moe said when he saw Preston thumbing a visa. Oh, sure, Preston fished out the cash.
5: Alrighty then,
4: Moe said, pocketing the bills as he headed back inside the shack. He reemerged with a hefty red and white cooler in his right hand. In his left, he carried a bag of jumbo marshmallows.
5: Okay, Professor.
4: Let's ride. Fifteen minutes later, they were speeding through the swamp. The boat tore through a swarm of mayflies. The insects peppered Preston's face like scattered buckshot. He'd never been so thankful for sunglasses.
5: Sorry about that, Doc,
4: Mo yelled over the sound of the winding propeller.
5: Trying to avoid some brush on the left.
4: Stilted red mangroves threw roots in intricate patterns across the swamp floor. Preston was impressed at how well Moe was dodging the trees.
5: We only need a couple inches of water, but we can still snag anything too stout or dry, Moe called out.
4: The combined speed, gas fumes, and frequent zigzagging weighed on Preston.
5: How much further? He yelled. Half hour, maybe a little more. Your thumb ain't the only thing green right now, Doc. Here, I'll pull over for a sec. Let you get your gut right.
4: Mo killed the throttle, turning the propeller handle. He guided the boat into a culvert. The fan blades whirred to a stop as the boat drifted slowly. Thanks, Preston said, his stomach appreciative. Examining the perimeter, he spied bladderworts water lilies, and spatter docks. Preston saw a trickling ripple swirl to the left of the boat. What was that? he asked anxiously.
5: That, Moe said, leaning over the side of the boat, is Big Al. He's a local legend in these parts. Al? As in... Uh, you came by that doctor in Honest, by god, Moe said, opening the bag of marshmallows. Yeah, old Al is about 18 feet worth of gator. "'Most folks figure he's about 60 years old. "'Most gators grow to about 11 and check out. "'He's what a fella like you would probably call an anomaly.'"
4: Preston craned his neck. He watched Mo, trying to follow the older man's searching eyes. "'Something so large should have been easier to find.'" Staring off the rear of the boat, Mo plucked a marshmallow from the bag and held it over the water.
5: You may want to scoop back, Professor, Mo said.
4: Preston inched back as far as his seat allowed. He tensed, feeling sweat drip down his back. The sun may have weakened, but the humidity was as thick as ever. He'd forgotten it while the boat was cutting through the swamp, the headwind drying his skin. Moe clicked his tongue as casually as if he were summoning a house cat.
5: Here, gator, gator, gator.
4: With a violent splash, Big Al broke the water, lunging upward for Moe's outstretched arm. The gator's moss-green head was easily the size of a curbside garbage can. Its yellow teeth, thick as fingers, gnarled like splayed barbed wire. Big Al unhinged his bottom jaw so wide that it looked as if he could swallow Mo whole. At the last possible second, the old boatman dodged backward, letting the marshmallow fly. The gator snatched it from the air and fell back into the water, sending a swell under the boat that nearly capsized it. Preston pitched backward in a vinyl seat, clutching it tightly. Mo cackled. <laughs>
5: You all right, Doc? Man, you should have seen your face.
4: Preston couldn't speak. He really wanted to, so he could ask Mo just what the hell was wrong with him and why he would endanger both their lives for such a stupid stunt. But his lips wouldn't work. Mo offered the bag to Preston.
5: Your turn. Give it a shot?
4: No, no, uh, no, thank you. Preston stammered. His eyes were wide as he frantically scanned the water.
5: <laughs> Suit yourself, Mo said. You don't know what you're missing.
4: Is... is he coming back? No, unless I offer him another. Please don't, Preston begged. Mo
5: chuckled. <laughs> I'm sorry, Doc. It's just a gag I use with the tourists. They, they get a kick out of it. Of uh, course, you don't usually do it with an owl. It can be a little intimidating. Genghis Khan
4: was a little intimidating. Big Owl would have made him soil his fur-lined panties, Preston said dryly. Mo grinned, reached into the cooler, and popped the top off a beer shoving it at Preston.
5: <laughs> have one. It'll calm your nerves.
4: Staying low, Preston took as few steps as possible to accept the offer. Thanks, he
5: said. Don't worry, she ain't gonna tip over, Mo assured him. Tell you what, I'll get us back out onto the main and we can troll a bit before we pick up speed again.
4: Great. Mo fiddled with buttons on what Preston recognized as the engine. Pulling a ripcord, the fan blade spun to life. He reached for the rudder, gently guiding the boat into the open swamp. Preston sipped his beer. It was bitter. He studied the label. Swamp Ape IPA. It's brewed up in Melbourne, Moe said.
5: It's good, Preston lied. Bet your ass it is. Just like everything in Florida, except the damn Cubans. Preston shot him an uncomfortable glance. No offense, Moe
4: quickly added. None taken. Preston pulled his cell phone from his pocket. Eleven minutes after five, how long until the orchids, he asked. Depends how you're feeling, Mo replied. I'm good. We can pick up speed anytime.
5: Relax, Doc. Enjoy the scenery. You ain't paying by the hour, and you're still looking a little green. Preston swatted a mosquito from his
4: neck, wishing he'd stop for repellent.
5: The Spanish were the first to ever map the glades, though they hadn't even seen it. Mo began
4: in full tour guide mode, speaking just loud enough that Preston could hear him over the sound of the engine.
5: They knew there was something between the Gulf and the Atlantic, but they didn't know exactly what. They named it Laguna del Espirito Santo, Lake of the Holy Spirit. Right. I read that in the brochure. Preston said. The primary vegetation here is obviously sawgrass, which has some interesting characteristics. For example, sawgrass leaves will burn. But not the submerged roots, Preston said. It's how
4: the sawgrass survives all the fires caused by lightning strikes.
5: Sharp cookie,
4: Mo said. Preston smiled. That is kind of my area of expertise he said with an air of pride.
5: How about a little history lesson, then? Please, Preston said, less anxious. I'm sure you're familiar with the lost colony of Virginia.
4: Sure. They were the last members of modern-day North Carolina's Roanoke colony who disappeared. When other settlers came looking for them, they found all their homes and buildings dismantled. The only clue to their disappearance was the word Croatoan, carved into a nearby tree, Preston said, as if he were lecturing back at Harvard. What happened? Mo asked. Well, there are two theories. Some scholars believe the group was signaling that they were relocating to Croatoan Island, what we now know as Hatteras Island.
5: And the other theory...
4: The colonists were trying to point to a tribe that abducted them. That's highly unlikely, though, Preston said, leaning into the boat as it cut to the right.
5: You think so?
4: How would someone have the wits or the time to carve something like that into a tree during a mass kidnapping?
5: Oh, you'd be surprised what fear can do, Mo said, finishing his beer. What if I told you we had our own little lost colony right here in the Glades? I didn't realize there were colonists here. Not colonists, per se. Indians. I mean, Native Americans. Go on, Preston said, setting his empty swamp
4: ape bottle in the bottom of the boat. Mo tossed him another. Moe cleared his throat. <clears>
5: throat> Initially... There were two major tribes in the glades, the Calusa and the Tequesta. The Calusa were the big boys. Several thousand of them lived here, but they suffered attacks from an invading Yamasi tribe from the north. Less than a thousand survived. Most fled with the Spanish explorers who relocated them to Cuba, but when disease started killing them off, they moved to the Keys. The were supposedly a peaceful bunch, but the Spanish were scared shitless. Said that Tequesta ambushed their sailors who ran aground in the glades and would torture them to death. Half a decade later, Spanish priests tried to build missions along the coast, figuring they might be able to convert them. Turns out another invading tribe, the Yuchi, took care of that problem instead. Between them and the Seminoles, the Takesta were nearly wiped out. Around 1770, a British historian found most of their villages leveled. Legend has it that the final 30 surviving Takesta were deported to Havana. Most folks around here don't believe that, though. So, what do they think happened? Preston asked between swallows. Well, nobody really knows, but this flower you're looking for? The old timers around here swear those dead Indian spirits are what gives those things life. So you're saying the Tequesta put the ghost in the
4: ghost orchid? Preston said, feebly suppressing a grin.
5: I'm just telling you what folks believe. That's why they say those orchids are so rare, so special. They think that the case to spirits inhabit the orchids and protect them. Sort of the last piece of their property they don't want to lose. Mo explained. Well, I've heard some interesting theories
4: on plant development, but that's a new one to me. Mo revved the throttle gently and motioned for Preston to steady himself.
5: All I know is that you don't get to be old by being stupid.
4: As the time passed, The beer proved to be a double-edged sword it undoubtedly helped make the trip more enjoyable, but it seemed to have stolen Moe's recollection of the orchid's location. Preston cut himself off at three. He wanted to be lucid when, if, they found the orchids. He'd lost count of how many Moe had finished, or how many times he'd followed dead ends. Still, his control of the airboat seemed unfazed. Preston took out his cell phone to check the time, but the battery was dead. The last thing he'd seen on it was a notification of a voicemail from his contractor. He'd simply replied, Fix it, in text. He estimated that it was close to eight o'clock. The sun had set about a half hour earlier and twilight streaked the sky.
5: How much longer? I'm pretty sure they're just up around that bed there.
4: Preston followed Moe's gesture spying the outline of a tiny outcropping.
5: Yep, won't be long now.
4: Preston restrained his anticipation. Though Moe had been good company, his navigational track record had proven less than stellar. The time hadn't been a total waste. Talking about the Everglades' history was the lengthiest conversation he'd had with anyone, not even talks with Janie. And there she was again, White right where he left her waiting in the back of his mind. Mo idled the boat into the cove. We're here, he gestured toward the sawgrass before them.
5: May I present the Florida Ghost Orchid?
4: Hundreds of ghost orchids, as white as they were in every picture Preston had seen, danced in the gently lapping water.
5: He was moved to tears. You okay, professor?
4: Oh my god, there's so many. There are only supposed to be 2,000 in the state, Preston said, his attention unwavering.
5: Well, that may have been all they've found, but that don't mean that's all there is. When you've been running the glades as long as I have, you learn a few secrets.
4: Moe eased the boat closer, allowing Preston a better look.
5: There's enough ground there to walk right out and touch one.
4: He pointed to the twenty feet of mud-covered bank in front of the boat. Seriously? Aren't there gators out there? Preston asked,
5: captivated by the opportunity. Hell, Doc, there's gators everywhere around here. Just don't stay too long. I'll keep the light on and holler if I see anything.
4: Preston tossed his wallet and phone in the boat then eased his way out onto the marshy beach. He swapped his vision between the orchids and the watery slop that came up to his knees in case Big Al, or one of his cousins, chose to make an appearance. But there, that close, he was more excited than afraid. He reached out and cradled an orchid. Its petals, sepals, and lobes all fluttered in perfect unison. Its fluted stigma stood proud Displaying elegance amongst strength. My God, Preston repeated, laughing joyously. <laughs> Mo, you've got to come see this up close. This is unbelievable.
5: No thanks, Mo said.
4: I'll pass. Preston heard the boat's motor start back up, but he couldn't take his eyes off the orchids.
5: All right, Doc, it's been real. Second thought, stay a while. I think you'll like it here.
4: Moe called out as he opened the engine full bore. Preston turned. The shrill hum and sudden gust of the fan disrupted his stupor. He lunged after the reversing boat, taking two steps and then plummeted face first into the waist-high water. Panic and confusion overtook him. He tried to swim after Mo. It was tossed aside by the boat's churning wake. Preston screamed, begging Mo to return until he lost sight of the spotlight. Terrified and alone in the blackness, he slid back through the ooze to the company of the orchids. Scratching blindly in the muck, Preston scrambled as high on the bank as possible to escape the reach of any gators. He found the root of a mangrove, and held on for dear life trying to get his feet on land. A guttural murmur came from the left. He froze and listened. A moment later, it warbled again, louder. An echo answered from behind him, followed by another. Within seconds... Terrifying sounds surrounded him. Preston tried to run, but tumbled back into the marsh. He stayed under for as long as he could, hoping the noise would be gone when he surfaced. For a moment, the noises sounded like a language, an ancient, lost language unfamiliar to Preston. He rose from the water, working towards the shore, then stopped dead in his tracks. The glow of tiny red dots danced in the darkness. They bounced within yards of him before disappearing. Suddenly, the small pair of lights came back, joined by other pairs. Eyes, Preston thought. He stood, water seeping into his very core. Dozens of different colored eyes stared at him, glowing yellow, orange and red. Something brushed past his legs, snapping him back into reality. He thrashed in the water, trying to find the mangrove to back against. Silence and stillness returned. All the eyes disappeared. Preston clambered up onto the roots of the tree. He had imagined it. It, it, it must have been some type of a fish against his leg and fireflies in the trees. Those well, stories had gotten the better of him, but it wouldn't get the best. He was a man of science, after all. Suddenly, dozens of moss covered hands reached up, took hold, and pulled Preston beneath the liquid black. He thrashed, kicking and screaming his bubbling voice sounding much like those of his now screaming tormentors. Reds, oranges, and yellows flashed around him as he was pulled into the bowels of the swamp, mud and water filling his nose, eyes, and lungs. Preston ceased struggling as the strong hands gently guided him deeper into the mud. When he opened his eyes, he could see clearly. Everything was in shades of yellow. Vines snaked around him, piercing his flesh in excruciating precision. Slimy vegetation slithered down his throat, nesting his organs in floral incubators. Roots slowly replaced his bones. Preston heard the process in his mind. The sentient screams of his dying cells and the triumphant battle cries of the new organisms conquering his body. Then came the voices of his brothers, warm and inviting, as they began to hoist him from the murk. He finally understood them all. Still, he tried holding on. He tried salvaging what was left of himself, of Preston. Why resist? He wondered. All his fears were fading. This was everything he had ever wanted. Preston wasn't alone anymore. But then he thought of Jenny.
5: Jamie. Janet. Jan. What was it
3: again? I hope you enjoyed Bogged Down as written by Jason Norton and voiced by Jeff Clement. If you enjoyed that last performance, check out the book Daylight Dims," edited by our good friend, author Christopher Mallory. It's available on Amazon.com, and it includes not just Bogged Down, but a wide variety of other gruesome and paranormal tales. You won't be sorry you did. And if you check out the book, by all means, leave them a five-star review and a kind word and tell them that Otis sent you and that you heard about the book here on this show. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close, but before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us on tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and as always, it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams.
2: (laughs) Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director, Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway?
1: <laughs> you can live out your master chef dream.